So hello and welcome to uh, the latest Discover Plus podcast. This is um, Discover, which is the magazine produced by Disability Cornwall and the Arts of Silly. Uh, my name is Theo Blackmore. I'm one of the podcast, um, I don't know what, one of the podcast, um, what, what am I? Interviewers? <laughs> Interviewer, that's it. Today I'm talking to... Ellen Clifford. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks for coming along today. It's a hot day in the middle of summer in 2023. Um, so Ellen Clifford, it's great that you're here. Thank you very much for that. And I was very interested to talk to you for a variety of reasons. So one of which is I believe you're involved with um, the early days of the organisation Disabled People Against the Cuts, known as DPAC. Yeah. Yes, involved since 20 midway through 2011 they actually started in uh i think it was end of september maybe early october i think end of september 2010 but started from a protest outside the Tory party conference uh that year and disabled people were already very concerned by announcements and indeed by the manifesto on which the the tories were elected that year um so started trying to mobilize quite early on um, and ended up leading that protest. And uh, I wasn't actually there myself. It rained, which then became a feature of all Deepak's subsequent protests, really. Um, either that or sweltering heat. Um, and people really wanted to continue that mobilisation afterwards. And Deepak just sort of grew organically from there. I got involved uh, the, the summer after um, and have been ever since, basically. So we're more than a decade old now. Wow, how old we all are. That's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> Increasingly so, yes. <laughs> so Deepak, I mean, basically there was a core group of a small number of people, I think. Was it was it Linda? Linda Burnip? Yeah, there was Linda Burnip. There was um our late co-founder Debbie Jolly, um, who was a big driving force behind that. She she sadly passed uh suddenly in November 2016. That was a big loss. Um, there was Eleanor Lisney, Bob Williams, Findlay, Tina Hogg, uh, I think maybe uh, maybe the artist Crippin. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know all the names, but it was, yeah, and mainly Midlands based as well, actually. Great. We've got a relationship down here in Cornwall with Crippin. He did lots of the artwork in the offices that we've got over in Hale. Yeah, he's brilliant. Great big mural on the wall and loads of signage around the toilets. He was very keen to do the signage around the toilets, I think. <laughs> toilets are such a big thing for disabled people, though, aren't they? Fact, Every newsletter I've ever been involved in for disabled people always ends up focusing a lot on toilets. Yeah. And so Deepak, you know, it, it's it's a great, um, it was a great organisation in many ways. It's just... Um, it kind of completely dispels the way that the organisations kind of mobilise and run themselves. So organisations very often are centralised and have kind of a central power base and they have local groups around the country. And Deepak, it seems to me, is just not centralised. It's just decentralised and just gives power to the local groups completely to run their own campaigns and do their own activities. Yeah, I mean, basically, when people get in touch and they say, can we can we set up? We say, well, we've got... Um core principles you have to follow uh, one of those is the social model of disability there's the principle of nothing about us without us there is you know disability justice not charity um and you have to i, I think you have to have um 
a fairly anti-capitalist analysis probably we are you know we were set up expressly to make links with the wider anti-austerity and, and left um uh, movements and trade unions and that's it basically if you agree to all of that and you get autonomy and you can use the logo and so we hear a lot about the social model of disability what does it what does it mean to deepak i mean it's it's a phrase that's bandied around a lot and i'm quite au fait with it and i think you obviously are as well but what, what does it mean for deepak's point of view um i mean that is an interesting one just thinking because obviously uh in my book i actually final chapter ends with a kind of a, a proposal for reinvigorating it does everyone in deepak sign up to that i'm not so sure we've never had that discussion maybe we should I suppose for us, it is the idea that you have uh, disability on the one hand, which is an oppression people with uh, impairments face, impairments on the other hand, as uh, a distinction between the two. Um, the idea is that disabled people are people who are disabled by society and there's nothing inherently wrong with us. You know, for me, the social model, there is sort of three things that are absolutely brilliant about it from the early days is that number one it was the first or first definition of disability that was created by disabled people and number two it's kind of for the first time that those two the words got separated from each other the word the idea of disability and the idea of impairment and it's about the entire is the idea behind it is the idea about barriers and society's barriers that are created within society which prevent disabled people or people with impairments from doing the things that they want to be doing it's an absolutely revolutionary concept, I think, because it turned upside down the traditional way of looking at disability, um, whereby the problem was located in the person, as you say, the social model locates the problem within society. I think a lot of people misunderstand it and think when, when they hear the term social model, they think what we're saying is, you know, disability isn't real. It's, you know, a social construct, which you know, isn't what it's about at all. It's just... Um, focusing on those very real material barriers that exist in society and saying, you know, the conditions that we live with are non-normative bodies and minds aren't the problem. I think one of the big criticisms has always been the idea of impairment. Uh, some people don't identify with that concept and that stopped lots of groups of people who are disabled and experience that oppression actually identifying with it. And that has been a problem because the whole point of the social model is for us to unite under. It's a collective call for action. Um, and I guess that's what I've been doing some, some work around. I want to do more work is looking at a social model of impairment. Wow. You know, and then the whole thing about barriers. So we talked about Crippen earlier and he's an artist and he does funny cartoons also, which illustrate the, the sort of trials and tribulations of disabled people experiencing in their everyday lives and one of his famous pictures is a guy in a wheelchair at the bottom of a flight of steps at the top of the flight of steps is an accessible toilet and that's what we understand by barriers in society but it goes way deeper than that you know it's not necessarily all about physical structures in society I was talking to somebody about it and you used the terms oppression and oppressed quite 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 liberally and freely in your conversation and I was having a conversation with somebody saying you know are disabled people really oppressed and I was thinking back through my own work and I wrote a piece years ago now 10 or 15 years ago and I called it 
disability isolation and social exclusion mm-hmm. and it is because I was trying to understand what loneliness means for disabled people and loneliness is a concept we all understand it non-disabled people kind of understand it as this idea that at some point in your life you might lose a partner or a loved one and you might find yourself living on your own for disabled people it's a very different kind of concept because it's a structural concept that starts from day one of your existence yeah when you're separated from your friends and your family you're put in special schools you're put in special education you're put in special medical facilities and all of that kind of stuff and it goes on throughout your entire life and it's about the sort of structural barriers behind it and it's a much bigger deal than loneliness because disabled people experience some experience loneliness from the day they're born yeah and and for people who are who are deaf who were born to hearing parents um yeah that's that's complete isolation um and because it costs a lot of money to learn sign language you have people growing up in families where not able to communicate with their own actual families and you know that's one of the reasons why there's such high levels of mental distress among the deaf community sadly and so that leads me on to a point to say really it gives leads straight into an open doorway that you've just opened in that most organisations that I work with are known as disabled people's organisations or DPOs. And I've started coming more and more into contact with organisations that call themselves DDPOs, mm-hmm. deaf and disabled people's organisations. And yep. that put in the, the word D there, because a social model of disability, but there's a cultural model of deafness. Yes. Could you understand, explain what that is maybe? Yeah, I can. Um, I am a person that does use the the double D, <laughs> different disabled people. Um, so deaf sign language users um, identify as a cultural and linguistic minority um, rather than as disabled people. And that's actually a very controversial point within uh, among criticised deaf and disabled people and, and within our organisations. There are disabled people who argue that if you follow the social model of disability, then that does include all deaf people, including sign language users, and that not wanting to identify as disabled is part of the the stigma around disability. Um, And so we should resist separate identification um, because it would be, you know, non-social model not to do that. The social model is all about all of us with our different um, impairments uh, coming together under that banner of being disabled, that you know, it's about oppression and deaf sign language users definitely experience that oppression. Um, for me, I think that the there are very particular issues around language and that I think that if you don't do that kind of separating out, then you are not, or you're underestimating, I suppose, the impact uh, that those communication barriers can have on people. Um, I think that debate needs to be had uh, with deaf activists and disabled activists. I don't feel comfortable as a disabled person who's not telling people how to identify. I think the debate needs to happen, but of course, because of that communication, uh, because of those barriers to communication, and also the way that communication support sign language users has been uh, has been so undermined over the last ten years, 
um, actually, does that language exist to have that debate? And I don't think it does. You know, English does not translate. English is an oral, it's a written language. It doesn't translate easily into a sign language anyway. When you look at the words that exist in sign language, um, there aren't uh, direct word, you know, directly translatable uh, signs. A lot of the concepts we talk about when we talk about the social model, it relies a lot on the interpreter. So, for example, I had a conversation with an interpreter friend of mine about how, how to sign the word capitalism. And she said, so it kind of depends on the politics of the interpreter to an extent. So some interpreters will sign the equivalent of like trickle down, like trickle down economics, and some will sign uh, the equivalent really to greedy fat pig. So it can make it uh, difficult, I think, to have a kind of a, a balanced debate on these things. Um, and so until we're able to do that, I'm not comfortable telling people how they can identify. I think you need, I actually think it needs to be like a really big project you kind of look at what signs exist with you know with a group of deaf people and think about how we can actually have this actually have this debate um although what i'm finding is the younger generation of deaf people who want to get involved in campaigning they're feeling that weight of the oppression around not being able to get jobs uh, cuts to benefits etc cuts to all their services so heavily that i think a lot less interested in that uh in the terminology now so you know maybe we're not going to need to have the debate <laughs> yeah it's quite amazing um you touched on so many different things there one of the things you talk about is that sort of which i've never thought about before the filter kind of of the interpreter mm. so the interpreter you, you know a person a says something it goes through the interpreter and comes out as a set of signs or it comes in as a set of signs and comes out as a set of language and I'd never thought about the interpreter as being some kind of, um, well, an interpreter of the signals. And so it depends entirely on their own worldview. Yeah, exactly. Their interpretation, which is why they don't like to be called signers. They like to be called interpreters because they are interpreting. It goes through them. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, and then you talk about younger disabled people and younger deaf people there getting involved in the movement. I mean, Lots of organisations, lots of DPOs, DDPOs are finding problems recruiting younger disabled people and getting them involved in the, in the movement and are thinking that maybe the organisations themselves need to change in some kind of way to be more attractive to younger people who are seen as being you know, more interested in stuff like TikTok and technology stuff and all those different kinds of things and less in, less interested in doing stuff like sitting down with a bunch of paperwork doing yeah. helping people with their personal assistance schemes and helping people to fill out benefits forms I mean what's your kind of experience of working with younger disabled people and DPAC maybe do you have younger people coming on board with that yes through the student movement um disabled students um I think because what we do we're not we don't actually call ourselves an organization because we don't we're saying we don't have that organizational infrastructure um i think we could probably use a little, some form of infrastructure maybe just because of capacity issues um but we you know currently we don't have that so when people are getting involved it's very much uh in the kind of the activities the campaigning activities um which could be street protests or you know it could be things people want to do um 
they're not able you know to go out like uh campaigning online etc i think because it's it's more focused on i suppose what people might consider more more fun activities um we haven't had the same barriers um to getting people involved um i know that a lot of uh, disabled people's organisations, definitely disabled people's organisations, particularly in London, are finding it impossible to recruit. Um, what I'd really like is is more, I suppose, uh, a links between the kind of the grassroots campaigns and the organisations to try and be able to bring people through. But I think what we found, particularly in London, is a lack of kind of like entry level jobs for people. Also, with those, if you know, an entry level job, you're probably not going to be able to afford live in london anyway um it, yeah it really is a big issue here yeah and i guess also it might mean stuff like you know being well obviously being reassessed for all your benefits and being reassessed for all of that stuff as well and then social care entitlements i was just reading a report yesterday in fact about disabled people and how they just have to give everything up to afford to pay their social care bills at the moment yeah. um you know, and it was talking particularly about women having to not, there's a woman being interviewed and she was not able to afford sanitary products yeah, because yeah. all her money's going on her social care, you know. I, I mean, that's another very valid point, which is about how being disabled is taking up more and more of our time nowadays because of the repeated uh, assessments. Um, and that brings you know, serious levels of anxiety and stress with it because you are rightly terrified of things being taken away and then when they are taken away struggling to survive so people don't really have the time um, or capacity to get involved and if you don't have social care support how can you get involved as well a good friend of mine in in wales uh it's not it's no longer even a case of of, of um making sure he has support so he can come to protests it's making sure he has support to be able to access his emails in the first place and reply to people so you know people aren't even able to be involved in you know campaigning or being involved in the movement from their own homes anymore uh, and I find that terrifying because obviously that opens the door to people talking about us and us being unseen ourselves um, and then that's yeah a whole other layer of oppression isn't it where we we're, we're reduced in terms of choice and control as a as a section of society and then there's a set of stuff there about disability activism there's been a load of stuff in the news recently about the just stop oil protests and you know militant angry people saying how dare and there's that awful film of that bloke running down the street hitting those women mm -hmm. in london and tearing their banners off them and all that kind of stuff I mean, that kind of direct action protest, is that the sort of thing that Deepak is still doing around the country in different ways? Or is it something that's because it's people get very threatened by it, don't they? And um, so we haven't um, really started up again from pandemic. Yeah, um, after COVID. There were, yeah, there are lots of disabled people who are still at risk. There are people who are still shielding COVID, you know, hasn't gone away. Um, there's also the new anti-protest laws that have come in. So Pax actually got a project which uh, Andy Green is leading on for us, one of our veteran campaigners. I don't know if people associate that with being old. You probably wouldn't like that. But Andy's, <laughs> Andy's been involved in DPAC for a long time um, and working with organisations like 
Greenpeace um, and the Good Law Project looking at the implications of the new laws, because we want to make sure that before we uh, you know, start active on the streets again, that we can inform people fully and accessibly of what their what their rights are and what you know is likely to happen. So I believe that we're going to be starting to run some um, some workshops on those and training for people to make sure people are are up to speed with that. But our, our intention is to get back out there again. Um, I hear what you're saying about direct action and the way that you know public have come to see that we have found generally and i don't know if this would still be the case but but previously before the pandemic when we were active in that way we would find that the public tends to be more sympathetic to disabled people maybe part of that is because they're coming at the idea of disability from you know through that pity prism like oh god it must be really bad if those people are, are coming out but you know in a way that plays that plays to our advantage because um because we don't get the same kind of hostile levels of, of reaction but what we did find is that we were always policed in a particular way that was quite different and that's what will be i think the real test uh when we come out again in terms of new attitudes and the laws the what the police would would tend to do is to if we were doing a roadblock for example they would just move the traffic around hours rather than move into arrest because they didn't want the publicity uh it would look you know arresting disabled people would look bad there was also the issue that through the cuts uh don't have accessible police vans or accessible police stations so you know didn't want to they actively didn't want to arrest disabled people but it actually made it harder to get attention for what we were doing disabled people just can't stay out all night so inevitably people would have to go home and so they would just wait us out basically yeah i mean i remember back in the day back in i don't even know when it was well i guess it'd be the 80s mm. they'd have to say well people people in wheelchairs stopping stopping buses by physically tipping themselves out of the wheelchairs and lying on the ground and then the police showed up and they could not lift them up they didn't know how to do it so there was all those issues around lifting and moving and carrying and so yeah. to say well people then could do massive great big roadblocks really easily yeah but they didn't get uh any media attention really when no. you know when we were doing them uh for the pandemic um i don't know if that was some people believe there was like a specific media blackout um i love that we need to set up a band called the pity prism yeah <laughs> <laughs> <Like that, yeah. laughs> and so your name is Ellen Clifford, and you are going to be probably most well known amongst people that I'm talking to who might be listening to this podcast for the book that you wrote. You wrote a book called The War on Disabled People. Uh, what year What year did that come out? It was June 2020. Ages ago now. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Three years. Before the pandemic, in fact. It was. It was. And I finished writing it uh, for... 2019 general election I think I managed to add just you know a few paragraphs about um yeah Boris Johnson winning and defeating Corbyn yeah yeah but it's an amazing book you know and it just goes into such a lot of depth and detail about about the lives that disabled people live you know about every single aspect and about how basically the Tory government has been attacking disabled people for well, at least 10 years, isn't it now? 13 years. Yeah. 
the austerity, beginnings of the austerity through the pandemic and all up to the present day. I mean, it was very bleak reading in many ways. Is it situation the same now? Is it is it getting a whole lot better or is it getting worse? <laughs> Each time you think it can't get any worse than it does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the pandemic, yeah, brought in a whole load of new issues that we've not seen on the horizon. Um, a lot to do with attitudes towards disabled people as well. I mean, there was the whole <laughs> buying and people, you know, getting ill aspect to it. Um, but I think a lot of disabled people found the political and public narrative really, really difficult around questioning the value of disabled people's lives. It was this kind of binary of, uh, you know, the economy or us, really, uh, with people arguing that the economy was more important than disabled people's lives. Um, that, was, that was very difficult for people, while at the same time they are stuck indoors, not receiving the services they need, and knowing that if they went to hospital, they wouldn't be prioritised treatment. Um, and we've had the cost of living crisis after that, which is, you know, hitting disabled people, uh, particularly hard as well, because we were already, you know, um, in poverty disproportionately, you know, half of all poverty is to do with disability um in the UK so yeah things have just steadily got worse and worse and with, with social care um just cuts increasing charges rising people pulling out I mean you know I've heard people talking about how disabled people are going to be finding themselves more and more going and living in institutions again the whole independent living movement and direct payment movement is kind of almost backing away in lots of ways because disabled people are a you know, we are seen as a cost and a liability and a burden, and it's going to be just easier just to put us all in Cheshire homes again and let us live there. Yeah, and things have been moving that way, maybe more subtly, but definitely in that direction for a long time now. If you look at housing plans, for example, the government's housing plans, there's been so much investment in these extra care and um, supported living homes um, and not in accessible social housing yeah which is housing for life because it's you know lots lots of people who live in houses social housing or any housing will need adaptations to their properties as they age or as they get older anyway yeah exactly but so social housing isn't built anyway so you know accessible social housing definitely isn't built and a lot of people don't have you know the same opportunities to rent in the private market um, there are issues, obviously, with, with adaptations and accessible properties, but also for people um, who may be living with mental distress, for example, that there are lots of landlords that just actively discriminate against people. Yeah. And, you know, I remember interviewing somebody a long time ago now as a couple and they moved into a property and he used a wheelchair permanently and it was not wheelchair accessible. So he physically got off his wheelchair at the door and just shuffled along on his backside throughout the property and that's how he had to live until for about a year at least I think maybe two even until they found him somewhere that was accessible yeah horrific stories about the conditions that people are living in in unsuitable housing um, and that's of course why there were stable people living in the top floors of, of the Grenfell Tower who were unable then to evacuate 
Yeah, I've got a friend who lives in London and she's a wheelchair user and she doesn't live on the ground floor. She lives up a lift ride up. And every time there's a power cut, of course, the lift goes out or every time something breaks, it's always the lift. And so she's stuck indoors for the day. And if you've not done the stuff like buying your food and prepared, then for every eventuality, then you're just going to find yourself stuck indoors with no food and no way of getting anything. No, exactly. And um, yeah, the power cut warnings. I know friends who had letters um, through the post saying, you know, if you're disabled, it's up to you to make your own backup plans for when power cuts happen. And of course, people with, you know, medical equipment, that's going to affect. Yeah, breathing equipment, anything. There's um, a power cut happening in my house, in fact, next week. And I've had a letter through the post saying, hey, look, it's going to happen at this day on this time. Um, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> you know, the thing about the pandemic. So one of the things about the pandemic, as you were talking about it, was like, you know, over 60 percent of the people who died um, were disabled people. Um, and there's been a lot of concentration on other groups of people who died and got seriously ill, but not very much political conversation or media conversation about the numbers of disabled people who died but we were by far the majority and one of the things that struck me seriously about the pandemic was that what happened was that everybody on the entire country maybe even the entire planet was forced to live like disabled people live anyway so we were all stuck so there were everyone was stuck indoors no one was allowed to go to their place of work public transport stopped and disabled people often find themselves stuck in their houses public transport doesn't work for them anyway they can't get to the local shops technology doesn't necessarily work for them so everyone was kind of put in the same boat and because of that it all got really highlighted and got a load of media attention about what a difficult time everybody was having not paying regard to the fact that disabled people live that way anyway yeah yeah, I know at the beginning of lockdown, there were, you know, quite a few disabled people who thought this is a real opportunity to highlight how we, you know, how we have to live like this all the time. But I didn't get any attention at all. No. Um, and I think people found that very difficult. But the way that a lot of people were moaning how terrible it was for them. And this is, yeah, this is our reality. Uh, but people don't give a second thought to that most of the time. Um, I think in terms of the disproportionate deaths of disabled people and why that hasn't had more attention, I think it was because there was just this idea that, well, you know, what can you expect? People were ill or disabled. So, of course, they're going to die. It was like those deaths don't count the same as other people's deaths. Yeah. And people getting DNR notices on their on their notes in doctors and in the hospitals being contacted by you know their surgery um i have a friend with um she's uh disabled and terminally ill and her gp phoned her in person and tried to persuade her to have that on her notes and now okay. she's like well how can i ever go back to you know go back to that gp and expect her to help me live and give me treatment to prolong my life when i know she has that attitude towards me how can i ever trust her again a DNR, just for people who don't know, means do not resuscitate. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's all very difficult. And the cost of living crisis, of course, is again a situation that disabled people have been in for generations. You know, like something like I've read a statistic, was it the Trust or Trust said, I don't know, you would probably know the figures, but it's was it more than 60% or 70% of people who use food banks are disabled people? I think it was something around two thirds, yeah. Yeah. So so that's just, you know, that's how disabled people live their lives anyway. If we're spending money on social care, it's not going to go on food. Mm-hmm. 
you've got to make your choice. Sale people always have always had to make the choice between heating and eating. Um, and now it's just going to the nth degree because uh, prices are going through the roof for food across the board. And, you know, it's just getting much more difficult to live. Thank goodness it's summer right now, but who knows what's going to happen when the winter arrives because we've been through one winter like this already. We've been, to say what people have been through, you know, 10 years like this since austerity began. And again, there's lots of focus on what it means for families. Um, disabled people are facing a worse cost of living crisis, if you like, because our lives are more expensive to begin with, but there isn't so much the focus on, you know, how bad it is, it is for us. I, th I do think that disabled people are, are facing an existential threat at the moment. Yeah. And then David Cameron yesterday was on the television giving his uh, evidence to one inquiry or another to the inquiry. What was it about? Was the it COVID inquiry? The COVID inquiry. And he's saying how brilliantly the Tory government set everything up. And then he said, but of course, we had to prioritise the economy first. Yeah. So suddenly it's blatantly clear that they're just focusing entirely on the economy and just completely stripping all the public sector, health, social care, education, all of it, of any money. Yes. And actually, in economic terms, what they were trying to do, they failed in. Yeah. So, and there's been a big deconstruction of the whole trickle-down theory. You mentioned trickle-down theory earlier. There's been big, big deconstruction of that, saying how it's never worked, it's never done what anyone said it was going to do. No, and we know that the rich have got richer over the last decade by an astonishing amount, um, and the poor have got poorer. And COVID was an opportunity for rich to get richer. Billionaires have increased the wealth um look at the sunday times rich list and how many billions richest people in the uk increased their wealth by last year while the rest of us are facing a cost of living crisis um the, the wealth gap is just widening to a degree that i don't think any of us imagined when we were younger yeah no it's absolutely incredible um and people of course made money from the pandemic the whole ppe scandal and there was, you know, so what happened during the pandemic for lots of disabled people's organisations was that they completely changed. So these organisations, generally speaking, were quite reactive and waiting for people to phone in and waiting for disabled people to come to the doors and to help with benefits application forms and this, that and the other. And during the pandemic, it completely flipped. And so disabled people's organisations went out and found disabled people and said, do you need food? Do you need medicines? Do you need PPE? And became much more proactive and that just happened across the country. You know, it was an incredible thing to see because there was very little money in it. Some organisations did get money from their local authorities to do this work because local authorities finally were admitting they didn't know where disabled people lived yeah. or how many local authorities, they didn't know how many disabled people they had in their local authority area. But DPOs do know those things. Exactly. And I think also because we are used to living like this, we actually had in place um, some of the infrastructure and also the attitudes that were needed mean that we could mobilise really quickly. That we already had, you know, for example, quite strong peer support networks in place. Um, disabled people not able to leave their own homes have been making those that can. Obviously, social media does exclude people, but for some people, it, it provides you know, a good opportunity for inclusion. So kind of networks already existed and we were able to make use of those to support each other 
and keep going. But it was like you say, it was up to us. Nobody was nobody was thinking of us. I mean, I think the, the government um, was bringing out guidelines, COVID guidelines. They brought the social care ones out. They brought care homes out. They completely forgot that direct payment users living in their own homes even existed. Well, I don't think they knew to begin with. Yeah. And so DPOs, you know, historically, we've had a really hard time to sell people's organisations. I mean, DPAC, I have to say, is unique because you don't get any funding off anybody anyway. But DPOs do get funding from a variety of sources and the funding has been cut. And, you know, traditionally, those DPOs don't get core funding and don't get any sort of long term stability because of that lack of core funding. And. I don't know. I was looking the other day, there's 152 local authority areas across the country which have social services responsibility. There are not 152 disabled people's organisations. There's not one per local authority by any means. No. You know, we need more, but that's going to be a very difficult thing to achieve. I put, um, I've created a map and I put DPOs onto this map across the whole of the UK so that local disabled people could find their nearest DPO um, to make contact with and so that DPOs would have some kind of idea about what the whole thing looks like um, and there's an organization which is doing some work around disability hate crime and they've put it on their website as well so that disabled people experiencing any kind of hate crime can then contact the local DPO for support um, but there's some huge gaps across the country that you begin to see when you start plotting it like that you know, the biggest one was sort of just in the very centre. There, there wasn't the DPO in Oxfordshire. I've since learned that there is one, but mm. it's very, it's very early days for it. But you know, that kind of, that kind of lack of DPOs in many areas is a real problem. Yeah, it's massive. Um, and of course, there, there were more, weren't there? And they, you know, have, have gradually had to close or been taken over. The contracts have been taken off them by non-user-led organisations. Um, I think it's an advantage for DPAC that we haven't, uh, we don't have that kind of organisational structure that means we need more funding or, or funding uh, deliver services, um, because that does also put you in a relationship with funding authority that makes it very difficult to speak out. Um, I know of uh, DDPOs that literally had contracts taken off them as retaliation for speaking out um and i can't even say their names because um because they're trying to survive still yeah and i know lots of dpos don't get contracts because they're seen as being troublemakers yeah yeah yeah, yeah which is why i think you know uh kind of the model that uh used to exist in hammersmith and fulham um where you had a campaigning organisation. So they predated EPAC. Um, it was Hammersmith and Fulham against Cuts, HAFCAC. Um, and they set up to fight social care, or just the introduction because they didn't have any. And then, then Conservative Council introduced them. So they set up to campaign against that. And then you had um, the DDPO as well. Um, so they could have that relationship where the DDPO was, was working more with the council. You had the outside group that could do the kind of the outside lobbying and, and pressure. And why that doesn't exist anymore is because of what they were able to achieve through that, which was um, the abolition of the social care charging. Um, and now that the only local authority uh, in England 
not to have it. Although I think I believe Tower Hamlets is going is uh, going back to that. I don't I don't know if it's confirmed yet. Um, but yeah, be too so Hammersmith and Fulham don't have social care charging. No. Hey, and that's no. Result, that's because of the work. Well, it's basically that was that was Kevin and Tara and it absolutely was. Yeah, that yeah. Um, and I was involved with them for a, a little while, but. I mean, it was also the kind of the, the lack of the politics, if you like, because it was marginal. It was very marginal and Labour didn't know if they would get in. And uh, Kevin and Tara were quite savvy and did a lot of work that you can't do with the DDPO because, you know, you have to be politically impartial. They did a lot of work in the pledge from Labour to scrap it if they were elected and then targeting wards the council elections where more disabled people lived and saying if Labour elected this is what they'll do um, and so Labour did honour that pledge when they got elected and they also set up a disabled people's commission to look at bigger issues around independent living in the borough. And I believe but it might not be true but I believe was it Tara or Kevin or somebody else who got elected onto the local authority? Uh, it was a paid role, actually. Oh, great. So they ended up uh, job sharing um, a role, and it had quite senior level responsibilities within the council. And so that's another way to make influence, isn't it? To get involved in the local authority while there's a campaigning organisation that you don't know anything about. <laughs> I mean, yes. Yeah, I, I did think uh, when I worked at Inclusion London, something I wanted to do more work on, but it was always a question of capacity for the borough. Uh, the borough-based DDPOs was um, was trying to use uh, kind of local politics involved in the democratic structures. So, you know, petitions, this was something, and this was based on what, you know, HAFCAC had done. They got a lot of attention for the social care uh, charging issue by doing things like taking petitions to local council and then I think threatening to occupy the council chamber and so on. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and I, I think the difficulty is though that a lot of organisations don't have that capacity and the local authority is not going to fund them to have more of a campaigning voice, which is then going to do things that puts them under the spotlight. But also there's a big issue, isn't there? So to be a DPO, quite a lot of DPOs have to be charities. And as a charity, you can't do political campaigning for, <laughs> for you know, or against an issue. Yeah, exactly. And so that's why the HAFCAT thing works. The HAFCAT model works because you've got capacity because you put it out to a different organisation that then does the work on your behalf. Yes. So yeah, if there's yeah. DPOs who are listening to this, then it might be interesting for them to think about that across the country. <laughs> I think I think to an extent, I don't think they designed it like this. I think there is that, that similar model happening in Cheshire. Where okay. you have, um, I think you, um, called Disability Positive now. They used to be yeah Cheshire Centre for Independent Living I think and yeah. then you've got um you've got Cheshire Deepak is that Rachel Rachel Patel is that it Disability I don't know. I know Helen Rowland so oh okay yeah no it's not any of those names sorry I shouldn't have said those names <laughs> that's all right <laughs> you know it's somebody else okay yeah no that's great it's, you know and that's perhaps the way that more organizations will go so that's really interesting and a fantastic bit of conversation but it's also very dark is there any light on the horizon 
is there any glimmer of hope in the horizon as a disabled person living in this country you know doing this map was a very interesting thing to plot out where dpos are and where they're not because i was thinking to myself could you go anywhere else in the world and do that and you probably can't where can we find this map though theo <laughs> On the Disability Cornwall Research, we've got Disability Cornwall, if you type in Disability Cornwall Research, yeah. there's a map, it's halfway down it, there's a Google map. Brilliant. Sounds extremely useful. But I, there, I don't think you could do it anywhere else. I don't think if you went to France, Spain, Germany, or even America, you know, America's got Centres for Independent Living, but that's a different thing again. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you go anywhere else in the world and find a really good DPO sector like you've got in this country. Um, Scandinavia and the cooperatives. Okay. Yeah, um, and I actually think that was a better model than what came out of our independent living movement because, um, so organize, you know, we set up with organisations run and controlled by disabled people, but within a kind of structure that was more dependent upon contracts from local authorities. Um, to deliver services to individual disabled people um, using uh, personal assistance services. Um, and what happened is when austerity came in and cuts were made to those social care packages, cuts were also made to the kind of the infrastructure for supporting individual employers, disabled individual employers. And people would find themselves in situations where local authorities cut their package, for example, um, with the result that they're not going to be able to meet their employment, uh, you know, uh, employment, illegal employment duties with respect to the personal assistance. It would take each individual disabled person having to challenge that with the local authority um, because there was no longer any kind of like a peer-based support within a local DDPO or equivalent organization. Whereas because they set up as cooperatives in Sweden, it, it could never, you know, the cuts didn't impact on that kind of that collective organization, if you know what I mean. So people still had, were still able to organize together. And you're obviously so much stronger when there's more of you and each person having to write and challenge their local authority. Um, and they were able to withstand some of the cuts that have kind of destroyed disabled people's lives here. So I think if we could do it again, I think we should do the Scandinavian model and set up as cooperatives, because I think it, it builds in greater resilience in a time of cuts. Right. They've still faced cuts, I mean. <laughs> of course, yeah. I think yeah, liberal government there as well, yeah. yeah. Well, that's brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. Do you have anything that you'd like to say at the end as kind of a closing thing? Is there anything that we didn't talk about that we should have done or? Well, you said about, you said about, is there a glimmer of light on the horizon? Um, I continuously take hope and inspiration from the strength and resilience that disabled people have. And within our collective organization, our peer support, you see, I think you see so much to be hopeful about, I think. Um, in the work that I do, I get to see the, the beauty in humanity, I think. And so that's what really keeps me going. 
for me, it's always about, so as individual disabled people, you go out the door, if you do, um, in the morning or the afternoon or whenever you do, and just, it can be a constant struggle throughout the day. And you have to find little things to do just to get around these little barriers that you come up against all day. You think, well, I won't do that. I'll do this, or I'll just do that differently. And I'll just do this differently. And I think because disabled people, when they work together, have that mindset yeah. of working around things. I think DPOs are incredibly strong organizations because they can do that collectively. They can work around the little things. So there are cuts and organizations do experience great difficulty in different times, but most organizations manage to stay open because yeah. they figure a way around it and they figure out if they just do something slightly differently then they can do this. Because we have to be resourceful in our daily lives, but also we live interdependently to a greater degree than other people so we don't expect to be able to do everything for ourselves so we're better at coming together and valuing people's different contributions which obviously means that within the pool we've got a broader range of skills and in many ways we're we're better at asking for help yes do you know what I mean so sometimes <laughs> I'm just like yeah could you just do that for me yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. there we go that'll be that Hey, listen, Ellen Clifford, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and I hope it's been um, enjoyable for you as well. Yes, it has. Good to talk to you, Theo. Brilliant. Have a great summer. Yeah, you too. <laughs>